You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our recap of the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Neglia here with the Next Best Picture podcast, coming to you from New York, not the mountains of Sundance this time around. Uh, We actually just got back from the Sundance Film Festival for 2020. Uh, Joining me today to recap that festival, talk about our experience there, the movies that we saw, and give you guys a preview of what is to come in 2020. I have joining me, Casey Lee Clark. Hello. And also joining us as a guest here um, is someone else that we uh, caught up with over in the mountains of Utah, and that is Valerie Complex. Hello. What's up? So, uh, ladies... Sundance 2020. Ultimately, um, I guess I should start off by asking, um, you know, Casey, this was your first time attending the festival. It was. Um, and I want to hear from you, actually, like, what was it like? Um, what would you say to somebody that's never gone before? Um, and ultimately, how was your experience up there? Um, for me, I think I was so kind of nervous going in and wondering at how um, intimidating and overwhelming it would be. I've been to local festivals, but nothing on this scale. And I think that because I I had the working press badge, so I kind of stuck to the press and industry screenings. And I had like a, I think a good experience overall with that. Um, I think it's just taking things at your own pace is the big key when it's your first one. Kind of, I kind of took it as like a learning experience and figured everything out. But overall, like I only didn't get into two things. So it was like, I think I picked and choose the right things to wait in line for and whatnot but overall I had a really good experience I think that it wasn't as crazy as I expected but it still is like a big major thing sure and um you know you said before you have the working press badge for those that aren't aware um what does that like entail so yeah so for the press and industry screenings I stand in a separate line and basically it's like five minutes before the screening starts they see how many empty seats they have and then they let those people in. So I would typically wait like 45 minutes, sometimes an hour if it was something really big beforehand in line. I made a lot of line friends because we would always <laughs> see the same people, which was nice. Um, but yeah, that was the big thing. And then like if I wanted to, I guess I could have purchased tickets to public screenings or done whatever. But yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can say that the last two years that I've been there, that that was the uh, pass that I used. Uh, this was my first year with a general press pass. Um, which does grant a little bit more uh, access in that regard. Uh, Valerie, uh, what about yourself in terms of the uh, the pass, uh, getting around the city, overall experience with the festival in general? Well, um, this is my second time there. Um, so it was still it still took a lot of getting used to. Um, I, I just getting around was really hard because where we were staying in the Airbnb was like four or five miles away from Park City. So every day I had to spend like $40 getting to and from my Airbnb. So it yeah. became expensive. Um, I had an express pass. Which is like the God tier level of uh, badges at Sundance. <laughs> We've had different levels of badges. It's just interesting. Um, and with the express, you can just hop on the express line and get in first. You can get into public screenings, P&I screenings with no issues. I never got turned away from anything, of course. Um, I just found it to be a little logistically overwhelming because the Ray Theater, the Holiday, and 
the double the double tree, whatever theater that is, um, they're all like close together. But if you're not in that area, then something else is like two miles down the road, and then there's another and another, and then you know the bus system was 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 sufficient, but um, sometimes it was crowded. You couldn't move. It was like being packed in with a bunch of sardines. Um, <clears throat> taking Ubers from, you know, taking Ubers five blocks for like 20 bucks. It was like, you know, there was some issues that I was like, well, shouldn't this be illegal? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess that's just how they do things at film festivals. Everything gets inflated. Yeah. I mean, remember my first year there, I didn't even know that the bus system was free. And as a result, I didn't take the buses my first year, and I was walking between venues uh, for every single screening that I had, and that was that was not the way to do it, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, no. But even like you said, Valerie, even though the buses are very sufficient and they um, constantly are moving, it is still very challenging. Uh, to say the least, in terms of getting around from venue to venue. And it's something that Park City itself has kind of, I, I would say it has like, like the festival has outgrown Park City. Like the roads are just not built for this amount of people to descend upon the city as they do at this time of year. Yeah, that's kind of why I stuck to the P&I screenings all in that little area because it was just easier. Like I probably could have waitlisted some other stuff at other theaters, but then it would get to be like, okay, but how am I going to get back in time for this thing? And so it just kind of was easier just to stick in the same area. But, yeah. yeah. That's actually really smart. I didn't even think of doing it like that, just staying in one area. But the way I organized my schedule was based around public screening. Yeah. I don't think I went to a P&I screening because a lot of them were in the morning and I'm lazy and <laughs> I, you know, I was out at night. So Plus I, with your badge, you can do whatever, so... And it was just, you know, I just was like, well, I just want to take advantage of the public screenings because why not? Yeah. So that's kind of what I did. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, this was a year where I got to go to a lot of premieres myself and um, got to check out a couple of different Q&As. And, um, you know, I, I totally understand that what people are saying when they talk about how they got to leave one screen that ends at like 830 because the next one's at nine and you got to hop on the bus and it's going to take you 15 minutes to get there. And even with a ticket, you might still not make it because they oversell tickets all the time. And as a result of which, if you don't get there, you know, with a decent amount of time and it gets packed or if enough uh, express badge people uh, come to a screening that is over the allotment amount of seats that they, you know, anticipate uh, that there will be for people that show up for that, um, that can throw off the whole system. And even with a ticket, you could get turned away. So it's always like. I always say heading into uh, Sundance with a plan is always good, but you always have to expect that, that plan is going to change all the time. And you got to just take things on the fly. What film? You, did you get turned away from the film? I got turned away twice. I got turned away from opening night, the premiere of uh, Bad Hair. I had a ticket for that. And um, that was going to be my second film of the evening after uh, summertime. And uh, about a, over 100 of us with tickets got turned away. And that was pretty crazy because it was opening night, you know. Uh, so it didn't start off the festival on the right foot for many of us. And then the second time it happened was uh, for the premiere of uh, Palm Springs, the uh, Lonely Island movie, because they decided to screen that at the, I believe it was at the, not the Ray, but it was at uh, the, uh, the the library uh, theater. And 
that movie just had such a high profile that I don't think they anticipated the amount of people that were going to show up for that one. That that should have been held at the Eccles, which fits like 1,300 people instead, in my opinion. So, But I eventually saw both of them either way. I saw them both in the later half of the festival. So, um, you know, it just took a little maneuvering in the schedule to fit everything in. Uh, when all was said and done, I clocked in uh, 45 films altogether over the course of my time there. <laughs> Yeah, um, I was curious to know, um, you know, from both of you, uh, how many you guys were able to squeeze in? Uh, not 45. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw 19. And looking back, I think my first couple of days, I probably could have tried to squeeze more in. But I'm, I'm I took this whole first year as like a big learning experience of like what to do, what not to do. Yeah. Testing my own sanity, I think. But ni- 19 and I was there attending the festival, quote unquote, for six days. So I think that's still good. Yeah, I attended uh, thirteen, which is not close to anybody's thing. However, that is the most films I've seen at a festival because a lot of times when I go to festivals, the outlets that hire me want articles like right, right away, so I have to plan for that. So I have to see a movie, allot myself four hours so I can write, and then move on to the next. And move on to the next. And then that leaves little room for me to actually see things. But at Sundance, this is the most films that I've taken in. Yeah. And I'm kind of proud of myself. And I still have reviews to write. And I know with film festivals, reviews will probably be publishing well into next week. So even at uh, the Variety, who I've written some articles for, um, I know that, uh, you know, the, the editor and uh, the senior critic there at Variety is probably slammed with getting out other stuff. So um, my stuff is usually, you know, last to get published, which is fine. Yeah. I mean, I was telling you off air, Valerie, that like this year for myself personally, I made the decision not to write any reviews while I was at the festival um, because I wanted to maximize my time there to watch as many as possible. Hence the 45 films, which I know is like an insane number. Uh, But that was that was my intention. That was my goal. I didn't want to leave uh, Park City uh, kicking myself because I missed that one thing. You know, like that one movie that everybody was talking about. I did not want to be in that situation where I walked away not having seen it. So I made sure to see everything I possibly could. And I'll start writing reviews now. And the ones that I don't write now, the movies are still going to come out, you know, and they need a review probably that week for coverage anyway, in most cases. So. It's fine. I don't think there is a hard rule unless if, like you said in your case, if you're being like commissioned to do something for a a bigger publication and you are facing a deadline. Uh, Casey and I, you know, I mean, I'm the one that sets the deadlines here. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there's a little bit of leeway. But in any event, though, uh, why don't we uh, crack down what were um, our top 10 films that we saw at the festival? Um, Valerie, you're the guest here on the show. I would like to start off with you, actually. Um, what was the 10th uh, best film that you saw at the festival? My number 10 would be a film called I Carry You With Me. Oh, which I missed. I'm so yeah, sad I that I missed that, that one. Too. All right, so Valerie, tell us about that film for a minute here because uh, Casey and I were both trying to fit it in and we weren't able to fit it into our schedule. So, But I know that film got picked up, I think, by uh, A24. So. I thought it was Did Sony it? Pictures. Uh, I, I lied. Sony Pictures Classics, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked. Ugh. It was in the um, the next category um, because it has like cinematic and documentary elements to it, um, which are not a problem. Um, the film is about it's it's a queer it's a 
homosexual love story between two men who meet in uh, Mexico and uh, the one guy, he has a son, but they're both like sort of hiding it a little bit um, so that they don't get, you know, because Mexico is, has a pretty big homophobic culture. Um, and they cross the border. Uh, uh, one crosses the border before next and they do it for love. And it's just, it's a really great story to be told. And actually the two, the, the two uh, people who it's based off of actually live in New York and have a restaurant. And we get to see uh, clips of, like, we get to see the film and then real life clips of them, um, you know, and how they're doing now. So we get their story all the way up until the present day, and then the present day becomes uh, documentary style. Well, that's very interesting. I don't know. The directing and editing choices, as I said before, kind of wreck its potential because a lot of it is shot in the shadows. A lot of it is shot from the back. A lot of it is shot in the dark. You can't see things. Um, it's really... it's The definition of a next movie, basically. <laughs> yeah, the, de- the director mm-hmm. is... The director is um, a successful documentary filmmaker and I don't think narrative is her thing. Does it remind you at all of something like American Animals where that had cinematic qualities but they did like the interviews? Remember? I didn't see American Animals. Uh, I mean, I didn't, okay. see, um, I didn't see that. Gotcha. Alright, yeah, well I'm very much looking forward to checking that one out. The story does sound uh, pretty beautiful. The story is beautiful and it's, it's, it's still an important story. It's just unfortunate that Heidi Hewing who is the director, just made some of those choices. I just don't understand. Like, it won't work for everybody in that regard? No. Okay, I feel that. Uh, Casey, what about you? What's your number 10? You're going to kill me. <laughs> what? Why? Uh, my number 10 is a movie that I think blew your brain in negative ways, and that's Omniboat. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Okay, let me be clear about this. Omniboat was a movie that... I didn't hate it. I'm, I'm middle of the road on it. Like, I can't decide if I really enjoyed myself or if I wanted to blow my brains out while watching it. But I can tell you this, though. <laughs> if I was high watching this movie, this would have been a 10 out of 10 movie, hands down. I think that I, I think when I right after seeing it, I was like, oh, my God, this is in my top five. I enjoyed this so much. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, OK, the second I could cut half an hour from this movie and the second half drags and falls apart severely when it decides to stop being funny at points and its first half is so good. But yeah, Omniboat, a fast boat Fantasia is a anthology film around a boat in Miami that basically just feels like a feature like sketch show from like adult swim or something that is really dumb and really fucking funny. So it reminded me of a lot of like SNL type of skits that you would say. Actually, yes, yeah, it reminded me a bit of like, um, I think you should leave, which was a big sketch show out of last year, yeah. So. Um, but yeah, and there's a bunch of random actors in it, like Finn Wolfhard and like, um, Adam Devine is in a bunch of it. Like, it's weird, it's well, way better shot than it has any right to be. Agreed, agreed. <laughs> and on yeah, that. I think it's like 13 directors worked on it, including the Daniels from Swiss Army Man, which I think can also give you an idea of. <laughs> <laughs> the sensibilities and humor. I don't know when it will ever see the light of day, but I had a great time. There were like 20 walkouts at the PI screening and I had a lot of fun. So Alright, alright. I will only watch that movie another time under 
one set of circumstances, and but, uh, that is it. <laughs> I really thought it should have been mandatory. They should have been uh, selling weed outside the theater before oh, you yeah. walked in. Um, my number 10 is The Father, uh, starring Anthony Hopkins, who garnered uh, the first real, I would say, Oscar buzz of 2020 with his lead performance in this film. Um, he's basically playing a man who is suffering from dementia. And the way that the movie uh, utilizes filmmaking techniques uh, for editing cinematography to really immerse the viewer in uh, Anthony Hopkins' experience of dementia is just stunning. It reminded me so much of something like Memento, where the way that that story was told by Christopher Nolan, you, the audience, felt the exact same way that... um, Guy Pierce's character was feeling as he was experiencing the events that were happening to him throughout the story. Same thing here. And I, I was really, really taken uh, with that emotional journey that um, this character goes on. It, it was really, really powerful stuff. And all the stuff that you've heard about Anthony Hopkins' performance in this, I mean, at age 82 years old, for him to deliver this, I mean, I would go so far as to say this is like, top five like best performance of his career and that's saying something when you consider the work of Anthony Hopkins so pretty amazing stuff uh Valerie what about you what's uh number nine? Oh man um uh, bad hair ah this was the last film I saw at the festival <laughs> it's just the reason why I I should it should have been at number 10 but I gave it a lot more credit because it was, there was potential there. There was something there, but also it was shot in a way that I enjoyed. Um, And the premise is, I don't know, I gave, I gave Justin a lot of props for introducing the concept for the way it was filmed. You know, I gave him a lot of props. So that's why it's not number 10 and it's number nine. Um, because at least you could see faces and things were shot pretty well. But the story is, the, uh, I don't know, um, you know, as someone who, I don't know if you guys have both seen bad hair, but as someone who has experienced some of those things, like wearing weaves and getting chemical burns from perms, I just was, I think the story was, and I don't know if it's just me or whatever, taking it personal or whatever, but the story is personal to a lot of people. It's a very specific story that happens to a very specific group of people. Yeah. And, and I just don't think, well, Justin said he talked to all these women or whatever. I don't know who he was talking to, but mm-hmm. um, this just wasn't, it just wasn't it. It didn't, uh, I feel like being a black woman in America and, you know, people with the touching of the hair and all that. All of that is a horror show in and of itself, and I just didn't think the embellishments were necessary. I appreciated the social commentary of that film more than the horror elements. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. I mean, I get it. Yeah, I I, I did feel like that film was extremely ambitious. I'm not sure what the social commentary is, though. That's the other thing. Like, at the Bad Hair Q&A, he was just pretty much like, well... He pretty much said he left things ambiguous up to us. And I'm like, you... But that, that's, what, that's exactly what I like about it, though. That, that's exactly what I love. I, I like movies that have, like, multiple interpretations and can inspire discussion amongst people. So walking out of that movie, I that, that, that's, that was my big takeaway uh, from it. But I, I admit that it's a little too long. 
it's um it Way takes a little long. it takes a little while to get going. Way too long. And I just think because I don't agree with the idea that it should be ambiguous. I think stories like that you have to pick a side. Whatever side it is, it may not be an agreeable one. You have to pick one so that you can expand upon what the problem is. I think leaving it up to interpretation leaves a lot of room for error. And looking at some of the reviews that I've read, that exact same thing happened. And he's like, well, you know, I like to cause complexity and stuff like that. But I'm like, an experience that's personal to me, there should be no room for interpretation because this is what happened and that's it. But that's just my personal opinion. You sure. Know, I've, you know, I've read reviews from other people and from other black women. I noticed a lot of black women don't like it. So it's just interesting all the, you know, the different ideas and discussions that it's brought up. So Well, it got acquired by Hulu and uh, a lot of people will be able to stream it and check it out for themselves uh, pretty soon. Casey, what's your number nine? Yeah, my number nine is Kajillionaire, the new film from Miranda July, oh, which I'm not that? as I'm not as familiar with her filmography, but I it, it's I like quirky weird <laughs> type stories and it I think it really won me over I think that um I think Evan Rachel Wood is really really good in it I think Richard Jenkins is also good like he always is and there was just a lot of scenes and moments that stuck with me whether that be humor or kind of touching moments that I think will play well on repeat viewings and it always kept my attention well and I liked the use of music a lot but yeah I liked it more than you did. I know that, Matt. Yeah. Outside of Evan Rachel Wood's performance, this was one where it was so quirky and so indie to the point that it actually turned me off. Um, mm. But I, I, I talked to a lot of people that really, really liked it. And I thought Gina Rodriguez was really good at it. So uh, my number nine is a film that's coming out actually pretty soon. Uh, this is Never Really, Sometimes Always, mm. um, a movie that is a good double feature with uh, four months, three weeks, two days. Um, yeah. It follows a, a pair of teenage uh, girls who uh, travel from Pennsylvania to New York City to um, seek out help for an abortion. And it was extremely, extremely empathetic, um, deeply personal and very detailed. I mean, like v- down to the smallest uh, thing about the whole process. Uh, everything was captured in a way that made it just feel so natural and so realistic. It really, 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 um, I would say like for me, I was so attached to, um, the lead character played by Cindy, uh, Flanagan that especially when we get to the uh, sequence in the film where, uh, the title comes from, Mm -hmm. uh, I was just like so blown away by the performance that she was giving in this. And it's one of those kinds of performances where, um, she says so much with so little, it's a very, very quiet, very nuanced performance that's extremely naturalistic. Uh, but that scene especially, I was like, holy shit. I couldn't believe uh, how great her performance was in that in that, uh, in that that scene. So I highly recommend people uh, check this one out. It's definitely going to be a controversial uh, conversation starter, obviously due to its subject matter. And it's going to obviously, I think, be more personal for other people than for others for obvious reasons uh but as far as just a overall film goes i thought it was just extremely extremely well made yeah you'll hear a bit from oh, more from me on that one <laughs> i didn't get a chance to see kajillionaire or never really sometimes always those were the ones that i missed along with a couple of others like palm springs and all that i missed well uh what's your number eight? Oh lord uh nine days is definitely number Eight, right? That's where we are. Yep. Um, it's it's there because it's um, 
It's a little it's a little hard to classify, right? <laughs> it is. And I've never seen anything like it, which I give it props. Um, it's a little it felt long. I guess it is long. Um, but it's a really unique premise. Uh, I said it's an acquired taste. Um, but I ended up appreciating the message that it was trying to convey, especially after the Q and A and hearing from the director and hearing how a deeply personal the story is to him. Um, Winston Duke is, is, is fantastic. Like he gives a fantastic performance. Um, and I like the fact that he took it on and he's not typecasted. He's like this big old cuddly giant who's like super meek and shy and all that and I think that was really cool and also um, it was good to see ZZ Beats doing something that was not like um, Seaberg or the Joker um, she was actually get, like being utilized for a change <laughs> right like actually doing something so yeah um, definitely uh, a good uh, number number eight yeah, I, I would say uh, uh, that film, in terms of, uh, I'll say, I'll speak one other thing to this later on because it's on my list as well. Um, the concept of this movie is so original and so transcendent in its existential themes that it reminded me a lot of another Sundance film, A Ghost Story, and how it just got me to think about um, certain aspects of life, if you will. Um, more, more on this one in a bit, because I, I do want to mention one other thing, because like I said, it's in my list as well. So, uh, Casey, what about you? What's your number eight? Yeah, I'm sad I missed that one. That was like right near the, the end of my time at the fest, unfortunately. But yeah, um, my number eight is Wander Darkly, which Matt saw me be an emotional wreck after. <laughs> <laughs> um, with Sienna Miller and Diego Luna. I don't want to get too into the plot of it, but it's about a relationship and kind of the looking back on the timeline of a relationship and a lot of reflections on love and life and things like that. It's not perfect by any means. I think that it took me a little bit to get used to the film's premise and kind of get into its wavelengths, but it also, from an emotional standpoint, really won me over. And I think that has a really great ending, even if its twist might be obvious, I think. I think the actual literal ending is really well done. So there's a lot of it that I really like. And yeah, I, for, for the emotional reaction it brought out of me, I had to have it on here. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, we sat next to each other during this one and I was like fighting tears the entire time. And then finally, by the end, I was like, OK, you win. <laughs> Let the tears fly. Um, I really do like the filmmaking techniques in this movie a lot, um, but I agree with you, Casey. The only thing that was holding it back from me from putting in my top 10 uh, was the predictable script. Um, I saw the twist coming like a mile away, and I started to think that the dialogue was starting to become a little too heavy-handed at a certain yeah. point. But once again, tying this back to like a ghost story, uh, this movie for me was like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind meets Inception meets a ghost story. And like Blue Valentine. <laughs> and like Blue Valentine, sure. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, my number eight is Charm City Kings, uh, which if I'm going to uh, take a couple of different things and put them all together again, I would say this movie reminded me of something like uh, The Hate You Give meets The Wire on motorbikes. I don't know any other way to describe it other than that, so I'll just leave it at that. But 
this uh, character named Mouse basically wants to join a motorbike gang in the, in Baltimore and he's a young kid he's like 14 years old and he has like this other path that he could go down where he could become like a veterinarian and be you know a, a good kid ultimately and it was just all about him like being caught in this crossroads of wanting to join this gang or wanting to live a better life for himself I thought this movie was so well directed and just so well shot and the way that the story just flowed it was so natural and it had some really really powerful dramatic stakes that by the end um it packed a real gut punch for me and so um yeah the director angel manuel soto i think uh, did a really really fantastic job here and so too did the entire cast um there's not that many uh well-known names in the cast i guess meek mill is mm-hmm. someone that people uh, will obviously recognize but um, I thought the entire cast was phenomenal in this movie, and I'm really, really glad this got picked up because uh, this was a very above solid, uh, above average movie for me. Who picked it up? Uh, Sony Pictures Classics. Oh, okay. Uh, it is uh, a film that I am sick that I missed. I just couldn't fit it in. Um, I had, well, I had, I was initially, I was initially um, going to go, but I missed the film the day before. Yeah, and I went to the women's uh, celebration, so I was I didn't make it to the film, but I know a lot of people loved it, and I, I'm sick that I didn't see it, but I know it'll be coming out, so yeah, I'll get a chance to see it then. And one other thing about it too is um, the script is co-written by Barry Jenkins. Yeah, it's like he has like a story credit or something, and like he worked on it in some way. You'll be hearing more from me about that one as well. <laughs> exactly. All right, so uh, we're up to number uh, seven now, Valerie. It's a tie between. Promising Young Woman and Zola. Two different movies. Two movies where the first half is way better than the second half. So with The Promising Young Woman, I I saw everything coming. I, I saw it from the middle. I was like, okay, well, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And so when it did, I was kind of like, nah. And then I just, you know, staying for the... Sometimes directors at Q&As can enlighten you and make you like the movie more. But this is a case where Emerald Fennel made me look like Promising Young Woman less. Um, some of the, you know, and what directors say, it doesn't matter, of course. But still listening to some of her reasoning, I, I just couldn't get, I couldn't get behind. Um, you know, based on the ending and, and her being like, well, no, it was a mistake. And I, I was just what? And then, like, certain things just didn't add up. Um, the tonal changes and the genre changes aren't created equal. Um, when it's being one way, it's great. When it's being another, it's boring and slows down the film. It makes no sense to me. And I wrote it in my uh, my review. Um, as for Zola, uh, the first half is way better than the second half. I like a lot of the whimsical elements, and I even like the um, some of the queer overtones in it, especially when Zola and Stephanie meet um but then as I remember I don't know if any of you have read the the tweets the tweets are a lot more comical and this was made serious way too serious and then um the film didn't really have a conclusion even though the story has one that was the one thing that knocked Zola down for me like major points the way the movie ends is it ends like on this moment that makes a lot of sense thematically and it's a really really good way to end the movie but what this movie desperately needed was it needed text at the end 
to explain what happens to the characters because the movie just ends and you're right. like what happens to these people i didn't get it because the tweets there's an ending that is hilarious exactly like this is like this story is not like left open-ended like these people are not just out there doing whatever like there is a conclusion and the conclusion is so funny and I just don't understand why that was left out. I, I if I'm A24, I'm very quickly adding in text at the end of the movie over a black screen before I release this to theaters. Because otherwise, you're going to get a lot of angry people that are going to be so unsatisfied with this ending. Well, like, te- even like you're right. Even text would be great. But yeah. I think they could have used a couple. They could have used a million more dollars to just film that that little conclusion. It's weird. I don't know. So it, it got... At first, it was like a B plus or whatever, but it got bumped down. But I was like, what? Why? I just also like Jason Mitchell and like what happened and that none of that took place. So I just didn't know, understand where that was coming from. From what I was told, I heard his scenes were filmed before his whole big thing happened, apparently. Yeah, they didn't have to keep it, though. He Mm -hmm. he wasn't in that much. I agree with that because honestly, it doesn't it doesn't change the movie i don't think if you take him out yeah they could have refilmed those scenes just took it out like it doesn't because none of that even happened in the original story right would have it wouldn't have done anything to it to just take it out whatever people are gonna have a problem with that too so all right uh so number seven casey my number seven is horse girl starring allison breed which will be coming out soon on netflix it's a weird movie side thing i can get why people wouldn't like it based on how the story comes about and whatnot, but it always kept me interested. I think it's a lot darker film than I think it probably lets on. And I think that her performance in particular is so strong and like the range that she shows that I haven't really seen from her. And so it like, it's, it's a very interesting film that I would like to, I want to talk to people about it, which I think is a good sign. What is it about? It's about, I, I think the title, even though I read an interview with her about like, oh, this was always the title, it barely has to do with the fact that she's still obsessed with her childhood horse of like a kind of a loner girl who works at a craft store that is having, I think, like some underlying mental health problems and like trying to decide whether that's like a through line to like her, this basically schizophrenia that her grandmother had and that her mother suffered from. And like, I think that it also, you know, her own paranoia coming about and stuff and her having these weird dreams i think it handles how people can have like dreams where things are just slightly off very well and here i thought the title was implying that this was a spiritual sequel to sorry to bother you <laughs> <laughs> on top of this in promising young woman allison brie had a pretty good uh, festival run i would say all things considered uh but yeah horse girl was one that i missed i will be checking that out on netflix myself later on i'm curious to see how it goes Um, My number seven is a movie that I cannot believe played at Sundance. Um, And the reason why I cannot believe it played at Sundance is because, quite honestly, this movie very much to me feels like a Telluride movie or a Toronto movie. Uh, This is Ironbark uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch, which upon watching it, I was like, yeah, like this is an awards like caliber movie like through and through. Um, It's definitely got uh, uh, dad like dad energy uh when you watch it because it's a story about uh two men uh one played by benedict cumberbatch the other one played by um uh oh my gosh i can't remember his name now um ah darn but anyway uh, needless to say 
Benedict Cumberbatch plays like an American, uh, not an American. Jesus Christ, I can't get the, I can't get the synopsis right. Um, he plays an English businessman who is recruited by the CIA and MI6 to uh, trade secrets with a Russian spy whose code name is Iron Bark. And this takes place during the Cold War. It's very much like in line with something like um, Bridge of Spies. But this was like a really, really solid movie with a very, very surprising third act. Uh, that really elevated the movie and also, for my money, uh, gave Benedict Cumberbatch his best performance in a movie since The Imitation Game. I I thought he was just absolutely phenomenal in this. Um, So this is one that I have a feeling they might, uh, Lionsgate uh, picked this up, I have a feeling they might bring it around to play again at Telluride the same way that um, Amazon uh, took the report from Sundance and they brought it uh, to Telluride and to TIFF and so on and so forth. I think that you'll see Iron Bark play at other festivals later on in the year to kind of keep it in the conversation. Um, that's my hunch. So we'll see where it goes. But yeah, very, very solid film all around. All right, uh, Valerie, number six. A film called Off the Record. This is a documentary? Yes. Okay. And it's actually a documentary about the women that Russell Simmons rate oh wow yeah that sounds very that sounds very heavy <laughs> it is and it's um like 20 or so women and you find out that russell simmons has been hiding out in bali for like two years which i didn't know um because bali is a a, a country that um has no extradition laws did they interview him for this no oh no. okay Oof. he says that everything is fabricated while hiding in bali pretty much it, it's really really off the and I mean it's off the it's off the wall because it's like Russell Simmons had a type of woman that he assaulted and um the the ecosystem in which these women existed existed in um that sort of coddled this behavior um the fact that they are black women who were ignored for a lot of it and the element of well because, you know, there's been a lot of pushback as like, well, why did you go to white publications like the Hollywood Reporter and the New York Times instead of going to this and that? And, you know, hearing them talk about how they were rejected by their stories were rejected by black publications for, you know, reasons like people just, you know, people didn't want to get involved because they wanted to keep their job. They were scared of speaking out or people who just didn't believe them. And it was really... um the Q&A for that film was absolutely intense. I mean, they were going off. I've never seen a Q&A like that before, where the, where the victims were just like, you know, speaking their truth and really just being as honest as possible, making the audience uncomfortable as hell. And I, I just, I don't know. I, I'm not saying, you know, it's not a film for entertainment. Uh, it's, it's, it's educational purposes, but I... But it had like a profound emotional impact on you. It had a, yes. Because I don't want to say, oh, I enjoyed it. That's not true. Sure. It had an emotional impact on me. Um, I don't know if anybody's picked it up. But, you know, that's the film that Oprah dropped out of. Oh, interesting. She was supposed to be sponsoring it. Kind of like how she sponsored the Michael Jackson documentary. Yeah. But she backed out of it. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot of controversy around this film. So it's my number six, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, Casey, what about your number six? My number six is another film that we saw together, Matt, which is Sylvie's Love, starring Tessa Thompson, which ticked off all my period film-loving boxes with 
this perfect costuming and production design and the use of, I guess, older archival footage, it almost looked like at points with its transitions of like, I guess, to save money because, you know, creating a period scape, uh, New York City is probably very cost effective. So that was nice. It's just like a beautiful, you know, star-crossed lover type story. It doesn't do anything new, I think, but I thoroughly enjoyed watching it and it kind of, I, I think some of, I think the grievances for it, I kind of let, I, I give it the benefit of doubt on certain things because I think it's just very well made and I think everyone in it is so great. And yeah, I, I just really liked that one quite a bit. Yeah, that movie is unabashedly romantic. Which I love. <laughs> it, it does not hold back at all in how romantic it is. Um, and it's also got like this classic throwback feel uh, to films of like the 1950s that I think a lot of people are also going to really, really appreciate as well. Um and I also like, too, that the movie is also tackling um, certain themes that we've seen in other love stories before about, you know, pursuing your own dreams versus uh, the dreams of another person and just trying to make that fit in, in, in you know, when you really, really love someone, um, trying to trying to achieve both. And a little bit elements of class and like, you know, oh, don't fall in love with someone below your stature or whatever. And like right. that type of um, inner conflict and things like that, which, again, nothing fully new but i never thought it was not well done if that makes any sense yeah no i get it um my number six is the funniest movie i saw at sundance this year um and that is palm springs uh starring andy samberg and uh kristen uh miliotti uh with gk simmons in a supporting role that was absolutely hysterical uh this movie is centered around a wedding that is taking place in as you guess palm springs and there is a Groundhog Day element to this movie, kind of a high concept sci-fi uh, angle where uh, the two characters are basically caught reliving the same day over and over and over again at this wedding. And it's really, really funny and also extremely sweet. And the chemistry between um, Kristen and Andy is just like off the charts great. That by the end of the film, um, I was really, really captivated in their journey and what it was they were uh going through and trying to break this loop uh, that they were in together. Uh, this is definitely one of those, you know, studio comedies that I, I really hope does find an audience. It reminded me of something like Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And like I said, just how funny and clever it was at times, but also to um, really, really showing a great humanity for its characters and getting you to really, really care about them. Um, the movie also has like this commentary just on life in general and like whether or not if it's meaningful or meaningless. And I loved uh, some of the commentary on that um, that got me thinking uh, philosophically about the movie. And I'm like, oh, this is really cool. A comedy that's making me think. <laughs> so that's always a nice thing for me. Um, I really, really enjoyed this one. I can't wait for people to check it out. It's being released uh, by Neon later this year. Number five, Valerie. Number five is a film called This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection. It is a, how do I explain it? It is one of those films that people miss at a, at film festival. They don't see it. They don't bother to go and, I don't know. So no name stars, basically. No name stars. Actually, it's a film that stars a, a first-time 80-year-old actress who is, um, I forgot where it takes place, but she pretty much loses all of her family to death. And 
she is like, well, since everybody's dead, I'll just plan my funeral too and get up on out of here. But um, oh. pretty much gentrification comes to her village and it gives her new purpose. And I love old people and I think they're so cute. And I just, you know, seeing her give her performance, she was strong. She, she is resilient. And the cinematography is some of the best that I've seen of the films. At Sundance, every color pops is lush. The director really knows what he's doing. This woman, her name is Mary, the actress, she is fantastic. In her first role, I don't know what it is about raw talent, but she's she's great. And uh, I really recommend people see it. I don't think it's been picked up. It seems like it's something that Array would pick up for Netflix. Um, but it's a really good film, and I don't think anybody saw it but me. No, I I, um, I didn't check it out. In fact, I didn't even know to check this one out. It wasn't on my radar like in, at all. And quite frankly, you're right, Valerie. I didn't hear many people talking about this one at the festival either. So, yeah. All right. Well, maybe this will uh, put it on some people's radar then. Uh, Casey, what about you? Yeah, my number five was the actually the first film that I saw at Sundance, which is Crip Camp, the upcoming Netflix documentary from the same production team as American Factory that came out this past year um, about a camp outside of Woodstock in the 70s for teens and young people with disabilities, be they um, people with cerebral palsy, there's people with polio, a lot of people in wheelchairs, but also some other people with... Um, mental handicaps as well. And then kind of that bond that all of them formed there. And then which later led them all to great activism and things like that. It's a really touching documentary. It's very sweet and funny at times. And I think that it's what starts out as just like a lovely personal documentary becomes very political and it becomes really inspiring. And I think that it's one that will be one of the big documentaries of the year. All right. My number five is the black and white film from debut director, star, producer, writer, Rada Blank. This is the 40-year-old version. And this movie is the kind of movie that I love Sundance for. When you watch something that is a quote-unquote discovery, it just, like, it excites you. And I was so, so excited when I was watching this movie to discover uh, Rada Blank and what she was doing playing this uh, down her on her luck New York playwright who decides uh, right before she turns 40 years old that she wants to become a rapper. Like I said, shot in black and white on the streets of New York. This is such a New York movie. It's ridiculous. I do think it could have lost like maybe 10, 15 minutes because it runs over two hours long. 20, 20 minutes gone. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so, so funny. Um, It has a character that is so easy to root for. Um, It's extremely clever and smart. And it's just so damn entertaining. I mean, like... In terms of like the, the howls of laughter that were coming from my theater uh, while watching this, the audience was eating this movie up. Th- this screening was like just such an energetic um, experience. You you had to be there in the room at this first screening to just feel the energy, and it just made the experience all that much better. I can't wait to see. Um, I've heard that Netflix is in talks to pick it up. I kind of got the feeling while watching it that I thought it would be a Netflix movie. Uh, 
but I, I really do hope that they can get it because I would like for it to receive that kind of a platform so other people can discover this the same way that we did. Um, I, I, uh, the 40-year-old version is my number four. Oh, great. Um, it just, it's just, it's very New York. It's very hip-hop. It, it reminded me of the New York that I grew up in yeah. uh, in the early 90s, early 2000s. Um, it, I, it is it's like 20 minutes too long. And I have some of the issues. I have some issues with the depictions of the teenage uh, in the film. But yeah. other than that, the film is consistently funny. I don't know. It's just so New York that I, you know, if you thought Uncut Gems was like a super New York movie, this is like the upper echelon of like the best films about New York yeah. just in general. Yeah, yeah, this and never really, sometimes always, I thought captured like New York so accurately. Both movies did. I gotta, I gotta check that one out. But you know, I'm not gonna spend too much time on it since you've already talked about it. But yeah, that's my number four. And like I said, people, just remember uh, Rada Blank's name. Just remember that name because she has arrived. <laughs> uh, number four, Casey. My number four is a kind of documentary, kind of. Experiment, almost experimental film. It was in the documentary competition called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. That I think it's best to watch it and then read about how they made it. But for plot purposes, it's about the last day of a Vegas dive bar and its patrons. It's really well shot for something so like one location intimate. It has a lot of to say about these types of lost souls that frequent these types of bars in these cities. Um, it also is like right around the 2016 elections. So there's a little bit of talk about that. There's just a lot of talks about the state of America, but not, and I think a preachy or too much way, it all comes out very organically. And it's just one that I think really won me over. My parents owned a bar and restaurant until I was six years old. So this type of environment is very familiar to me. And I it really won me over and has one of the best ending songs I've seen in a movie in a long time. So I definitely would recommend checking that one out when it ever comes out. Uh, number four for me was Another Discovery, a film that was not on my radar at all. I don't even remember why I got a ticket to watch it, to tell you the truth. Uh, but it's a film called The Killing of Two Lovers. And I was very, very surprised at how high up this placed up on my list here. It's um, a story about a man uh, living actually in Utah. Uh, the filmmaker uh, was from Utah and they shot it up there. Um, and it's about a man who is currently going through like a trial separation uh, from his wife. And they've got uh, four kids. It's like three boys and a daughter, a teenage daughter. And it's just a very simple movie about how he desperately wants to try and make his marriage work with his wife um, and not ruin the relationship with his kids and it was just a very deeply personal and very um, felt movie for me that um, I was very, very surprised with the intimacy uh, and uh, the level of sensitivity that uh, Clayne uh, Crawford uh, delivered here as this character, David. And the movie has some really, really interesting sound design as well that's very tense and unnerving. You're always constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop and for something to go wrong uh, that is going to lead to um, him possibly never seeing his wife or kids like ever again. And um, it was very, very dramatic. I mean, like, by the end of the movie, I was stunned 
uh, by what they had accomplished emotionally with this character's journey for such a deceptively simple uh, film. And it's also shot like extraordinarily well. There's a lot of long takes in the movie. Um, some of them uh, shot uh, with long focal length lenses, very, very wide. So you see scenes uh, play out at a distance, and it's really, really just riveting stuff all around. Um, this was something that when it was over, I, I just like I couldn't wait to see what these uh, filmmakers would deliver as their next project. And it kind of also screams indie spirit nominee to me mm. <laughs> as something that like flies under the radar all year you probably will not hear about it um other than me talking about it on this podcast today but it then just randomly shows up at indie spirit awards next year you know <laughs> so all right uh top three time uh valerie what's uh number three so number three is going to be um two foreign films uh jumbo and cuties uh uh, Jumbo is the film starring Nomi, Noemi uh, Merlant, who was in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And she falls, it's it's a girl, girl meets world, as she <laughs> falls in love with a uh, an amusement park ride. Um, and the film sort of elaborates on objective sexuality. And it really, it's a really interesting uh, sort of queer story about acceptance and, um, you know, yeah, she falls in love with the ride which is a little weird and i noticed a lot of people just didn't like that aspect because they said it was too out there but this objective sexuality is something that actually exists um and i found out that it's actually comorbid or tends to coexist with forms of autism and um and uh no i mean Merlant is like it's it's beautifully shot like and it's just i interviewed the director and really learning about all the intricacies that she uh uh, entailed in the film about how the ride would communicate with a human and things of that nature were really um, were really interesting uh, and I really like the film because it's it's hopeful it has its funny moments and um, so that was my that was one of my number threes my other cuties is about the exploitation of middle schoolers and it's a very uncomfortable film to watch like in the theater you could see people shifting and groaning and it was really uncomfortable because the film is directed by a, a, a french woman french black woman and it's a film that actively goes about exploiting middle schoolers and why did i like that because at, at her q a she explained a couple of things she explained that it's about um the war between parents and social media because a lot of the film does take place in the world of social media and how middle schoolers are highly, you know, they're at that age where they're hormonal and so they are highly influenced by what they see in the media. All the kids in it are first time actresses. They're all really brilliant. They are having fun even though the subject matter isn't that great. Um, but it's really, I, I mean, I wouldn't, rec I don't know if I would recommend it to people because it's super uncomfortable. It's like the way that I recommend, like not watching Irreversible is the way I would recommend not watching Cuties because it's that disturbing. Well, now I got to watch it <laughs> <laughs> because it's really that disturbing. I, I have morbid curiosity about about myself. So whenever someone says to me, oh, I, you know, this movie's too much. It goes there or whatever it is. I'm just like, shit, now I got to see it because I need to know what everybody's talking about. <laughs> you but know, I mean, it ends on a hopeful note. It has it does also talk about a lot of, you know, breaking free of tradition. And what does that look like? And what does it look like when your parents let you live freely? 
know, let you be free to sort of live your, you know, life as a child and what that means. Um, I recommend it for people who are willing to take the risk, but it's it's tough watch. Yeah. Um, one note I'll just say about Jumbo is um, the sound design of that movie and the use of colors oh and everything God. else. I, brilliant. Just in terms of just a sexual like sensation while watching the movie, um, th- that movie definitely achieved what it wanted to achieve, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. That was a very interesting movie for sure. Um, I, I, I did enjoy it. Um, I didn't get a chance to see Cuties, though. I'm going to try and catch that one uh, a little later. I think Netflix has that one. Yeah, they do. My number three we did already <clears> – <throat> sorry, we did already talk about, which is Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, um, which I felt it's realism in my bones. It's While this was not something that I personally have been through, what it means, I think, to be a teenage girl in a small town and the overwhelmingness of, I guess, growing up. I felt a lot. There's all these little in, tiny details of like what they're wearing and like little things that really felt tr- true and honest to me. I think, yeah, that big, the title scene in that is really moving and powerful. And I think that I, I just really appreciate when films are this like hyper realistic and don't hold anything back. And it's just a film that stuck with me since I saw it that I, I don't think I'll ever be able to fully shake away from so, yeah, yeah, I definitely think it's going to cause some controversy once people see it with certain aspects of be it just about abortion in general, but also the hyper specifics of this story. But I I think it's really great to say I really liked it is kind of hard to say since it is a painful watch. But yeah, I think it's really well done. And it also got announced recently that it's going to also be showing at the Berlin Film Festival as well. Yeah. So that's pretty neat. Uh, my number three is a film that we already talked about. Um, I'm going to just mention a few more things about it, and that is Nine Days, uh, which was, for me, in terms of a concept for a movie, probably the most original uh, concept that I saw at Sundance this year. Um, I thought Winston Duke was like on a whole other level than we've ever seen him before, and this movie was such a powerfully uh, reserved performance that when he does have uh, louder moments, it like scared the ever-living shit out of me. <laughs> um but it was like extremely impactful. I don't want to give away exactly what the movie is about. Um, I think that would be a huge disservice. Um, but to say, I'll, I'll break it down this way. We've seen a lot of movies that deal with uh, life after death, uh, the afterlife, if you will. This is a movie that deals with uh, life before birth. And that was a very, very, very interesting way to uh, tell a story. And I think the way that they did so with like cinematography and the music in this movie too, um, the production design, everything else, this this movie, um, I was talking to um, another person afterwards who equated it very much like to Inside Out in the sense that it's very psychological and the world building that goes into, um, like I said, the production design and just the way that the movie uh, kind of explores the world in which it is set um it kind of just gives the audience a set of rules to follow if you will um and it just was very very engaging the whole way through i know some people thought it was a bit of a slog at times and a little too slow and i i I get that but um this was something that like unlocked a door in my brain it just got me thinking about uh life and the world and everything else uh, just in a totally different way and i really really appreciated that number two valerie what's number two Number two is Miss Juneteenth. I mean, I was sort of blown away by it. A lot, I know a lot of people didn't like it because they thought it was slow and whatever, which I totally get as well because it is slow, whatever. But 
it's a drama about a black woman who lives in a small Texas town who used to be, uh, who was the winner of the Miss Juneteenth pageant. Juneteenth is a day that sort of commemorates uh, the day that um, slavery ended in Texas, which was two years after uh, the emancipation. And um, uh, she, her life is kind of in the shitter uh, because she kind of threw all of her opportunities away and got pregnant at a very young age. Um, and the lead is played by Nicole Briari, who is one of the best actresses walking right now and really deserves better. Um, I really loved her in Shame and I loved her in Sleepy Hollow. Um, but here she really has a chance to sort of like shine and stuff like that. And she has a really fantastic chemistry with the, uh, with the young girl who plays her daughter. Um, and it's a chemistry that I haven't seen in a long time. It's really genuine. And the story is just about like second chances and like, you know, working toward, you know, fulfilling whatever, you know, the American dream is for you. And I think what I loved about it the most is that it, it's not filled with tropes um, that you normally see uh, Black women characters in. Um, especially when they're down and out and destitute and all that, where they're, you know, on drugs or, you know. No, no, no. I, th I, I, I think you're making a great uh, statement with that, actually, because, I mean, there's been a lot of talks recently, especially in the awards community, about the types of performances that do get nominated for, like, uh, Oscars and things like that. And I, I thought the same thing, too, Valerie, when I watched Miss June, uh, Juneteenth in, in the sense of, like, this is a very, very nice movie and with a, uh, a character that is extremely relatable to a lot of people. It doesn't go through those tropes, like you said. Um, and I think that that's a very rare thing that we need more of. The thing is, like, it's a very universal story, but also true to the specific black women experience in America. And it's so and I don't know why it's hard to for people to create roles like that. It's, it's not that hard. Like, it's it's really just not that hard. Um, and I just it, it was hopeful. And I liked the outcome. And I've, I've read a lot, a lot of reviews and people are just like, well, it wasn't this or it wasn't that. And it's like, so you wanted trauma and drama. And I'm like, trauma is there. Drama is there. It's just not what you think it should be. So, yeah, it's num my number two. Okay. Yeah. Casey, what's your number two? My number two you mentioned earlier, which we also saw together again, Matt, which is Charm City Kings. Oh. I... I love this film a lot, and I'm while well, I live in Philly now, I'm originally from the Baltimore area, so a good hometown movie. Um, so it, it got it was I was already kind of predisposition to like it on that, but I think that it's a really great coming of age story that might hit some of the plot points that you might expect of this genre, but I think that they're still well done, and I think I give it a lot of benefit of the doubt being you know a story that I haven't seen from this perspective per se. Um, I think that the lead kid is phenomenal. And I also think that the way that the camera shoots and portrays Meek Mill's character as this like God amongst men, I kind of love. And I just, yeah, it it's one that I already like have told a lot of my friends about that I know that they'll all like. It definitely seems like something that a lot of people my age and whatnot will really gravitate towards. So I'm looking forward to seeing this one again. Same here. Absolutely. Uh, my number two, Casey, is a movie that I also saw with you. Uh, it is Minari, the much-buzzed-about film uh, from A24. Uh, this movie stars Steven Yeun, who uh, most people will know as Glenn from The Walking Dead. It follows a uh, 
Korean family in the 1980s that moves to America to start a life of farming. And it's all about uh, how that decision kind of strains um, the father's relationship with the rest of his family and vice versa. And it's just all about watching like these characters trying to survive and create the American dream for themselves. Um, the cast in this is absolutely phenomenal the whole way through. It's such a humane movie um, that reminded me so much of movies like um, The Farewell uh, from last year and that the family unit is just explored so thoroughly the relationships between all the characters and there are these like mundane moments that are more character building moments that this way when you get to like the third act of the film especially and some more of the uh, dramatic moments come they really really hit extremely hard because we're so invested in just trying to see this family not only survive financially but also to just survive as a family unit and not get crumbled by other external factors um, whether it is um, death or um, um, illness or whatever it is that might uh, threaten to tear them apart. Um, so this is one that I think we'll be uh, talking about all year. I strongly suspect this is going to follow the same release pattern as The Farewell did last year. I think A24 is probably going to release it sometime in the summer. And I feel very strongly this is the film that critics um, are going to back uh, from A24 probably because I, I don't know about you guys, but the general consensus amongst everybody I spoke to at Sundance, people had like a wide range of opinions on a lot of movies, but Minari was the one that I did not find a single person that disliked this movie. More on that later. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. So Valerie, we've come to number one. Uh, what was your favorite film of Sundance 2020? Uh, two films again. <laughs> um, two documentaries, actually. Oh, okay. That I don't think anybody really saw. Um, one called Coded Bias um, and another called Giving Voice. Um, Coded Bias is a documentary that's pretty much about Big Brother and how a lot of the facial recognition technologies that exist in America are racially and gender biased and how um, people are being subject to search and seizure based on incorrect information that these algorithms are giving out. Um, so, for example, if you're walking on the street and they, you know, they the police may be surveilling you and the software may pick you up as a as a domestic terrorist. And you could be someone that has nothing to do with that, that's never picked up a gun in your life. But if that's what they see, then they're going to arrest you and take you to jail before they find out who you are. So almost like Minority Report, where they're free, where they're predicting who you are and who you might be and going based on erroneous information and the film was basically about how women sort of all over the world are rallying together to sort of get these these algorithms checked and the people that create them under uh under uh uh regulation because the software is being created by you know silicon valley bros who you know silicon valley is not a super diverse place so they're creating these algorithms and these technologies in their image and the rest of us are suffering. So I um, thought that was interesting. And then giving voice is pretty much about um, August Wilson uh, contest that happens where kids from around the United States or high schoolers from around the United States um, perform different monologues from August Wilson plays. And each city uh, has um, an audition 
and they choose one person from um, that city to go compete uh, in New York at August Wilson's um, his theater. And it's pretty much, it follows like these five different kids who all come from different backgrounds and all have different circumstances and why the contest means so much to them. And it hit me on a personal level because, you know, especially because it chronicles like inner, inner city black and brown kids, um, you know, being an actor is not something that is like realistic to a lot of uh, families just in general. But also the topic of money comes up when you're talking about paying for college and things of that nature. And I got accepted to an Ivy League school for drama, but there was just no money and there was just not, it was just not something that was realistic. And the film sort of hints on that. And yeah, those are my, that, those are my number one films. All right. Awesome. That's great. Love that we're getting uh, some documentaries here because uh, I did not see a single documentary at Sundance this year. So I'm glad that some of them are being talked about. Um, Casey, what about you? Favorite number one film? I, I mean, I guess we pretty much narrowed it down based on yeah. your last comment. What I will say is I'm sad that I missed Giving Voice. I wanted to see that one. So I'm glad that you really liked it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. But yeah, my, my number one was Minari. I, far and away for me, the best film that I saw at Sundance for all the things that I love. I love my slow personal family dramas, but I think it's also a film that I think is a lot more humorous moments to it, especially in those first two acts with the kids and the grandmother. I think that um, the director, Lee Isaac Chung based a lot of it on his childhood. And I think when, with, with something like the farewell, similarly of when you take something so personal and those details to it, it can become incredibly universal, which I love. And I think that it's a film that's so well shot. I think every performance in it is so great, especially like the kids as well as Stephen Yun and the wife and the grandmother. I think that they're all felt really lived in and authentic. And I think that it's a perfect snapshot of like basically like a year in the life of a family. And, you know, I think that it's a film that's slow and contemplative because you're having this slow build to like this big climactic moment that I think feels very earned and it moved me a lot. So, yeah, that's definitely one that I think will stick with me the rest of the year. And I'm so looking forward to other people seeing it. I didn't get a chance to see that either. Just all the big ones that I wanted to see, Charms, City Kings, Minari. I missed all of those. Luckily, they'll be out soon, though, at least. At least they're ones that, you know, have been picked up. My number one film is a film that is going to be released soon. Um, it's a film that was already touched upon by Valerie earlier. Uh, but it's a film for me that literally just combined every single thing that I love about movies all into one, and that's Promising Young Woman. This movie was stylishly directed. It had something to say. It said it in a way that I felt very, very strongly is going to create a lot of discourse, which I love personally. I love movies that challenge people and get conversations started. Great acting uh, from Bo Burnham and Carey Mulligan, who I think is delivering a career best performance here. Um, it is funny. It's heartbreaking. It was unclassifiable in terms of its genre. It took me, it, the story took me in directions that I did not expect to go. And it had one of the ballsiest endings I have seen in uh, a while, actually, um, that really, really floored me. And I was just so enamored with uh, the direction and the screenplay for this movie. Um, you will not hear me shut up about this movie uh, 
for awards consideration for um, Emerald Fennel and uh, um, Carrie Mulligan probably throughout the rest of the year in, in Best Director category, Screenplay, and Best Actress category. Uh, this movie was just... The- <laughs> Honestly, it was everything. It was everything that I want in cinema, just rolled up into a single package. <laughs> so it really, really delivered for me. I really like talking about films with other people because things that we feel about films are so different and everything. Because like everything you said about young woman, I, promising young woman, I'm like, what did he see that I didn't? So it's just, it's really interesting how, you know, um, how we all differ in the things that we see and the things we, we interpret and how we interpret them based on, you know, based on whatever we use to interpret film. And I just, this is why I really love talking to people and hearing their different opinions, because you just, you learn things, you, you know, you discover things that you didn't know before. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited that you liked Promising Young Woman and I didn't like it as much. Because <laughs> it, that's, that's just what film is about and having an intelligent sort of discourse about it. You know, we can dislike movies and still be friends and move on. And it's, you know, none of that Twitter drama, you know, yeah. that has to come with it, you know? Oh, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that that's like the most key important thing about the film festival experience in general is when you're at a film festival, you're really surrounded by your people. You're surrounded by people who love movies as equally as you do. And the drama of, you know, oh, if I didn't like this movie or if I like this movie and people trying to infer what that says about you as an individual, that doesn't really exist here. You know, at least that's not what I find. Um, I did hear some people walk out of Promising Young Woman um, actively hating it. Um, and I will say for the record that um, it was a, a guy who said that. Um, and the reasons why he hated it is exactly why the movie um, is important. And I can't wait for the rest of the world to see it for that reason alone, because I just really, really want um, that message that they are trying to get across. I I feel that that message needs to get across more clearly to a lot of people. Um, And I I find it wholly necessary. It's not a subtle movie by any means. Um, It very much reminds me of a line that uh, Kevin Spacey says in um, Seven. Uh, it's something along the lines of um, it, it's not a tap on the shoulder. It's a sledgehammer to the face. Um, and that's what that movie is to me is that that movie is just so blunt in what it is trying to say um, about women in general and how they've been treated by men for so, so long. And I – yeah, I, I don't know. It's like if people want to infer what that says about me or something like that, okay, fine. But on a technical level and how this movie is crafted and how it was made, um, I think it's completely undeniable. So – I can't wait for everybody to see it. I can't wait for the discussions about it. And I also just can't wait to, you know, just gush about it more and just piss people off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited to see that one. I'm sad I missed it, but I knew I was like, it's going to come out and then I can like contribute to its box office. So I'm not too mad. Yeah, exactly. All right. Great. Uh, with that said, I mean, is there, um, you know, just does anyone want to give like a quick shout out to anything just like, you know, maybe you just didn't get a chance to mention it or for whatever reason, is there anything else you want to just give? I'll allow you each one shout out so that we don't go too crazy. But is there anything else you guys want to just, you know, uh, throw a bone at? I missed a couple of films that I'm curious to hear about. So if anybody has seen it, uh, hit me up on Twitter. Wendy, uh, I'd love to hear more about Farm City Kings, Minari. Never really, sometimes, always, Horse Girl. Those are some of the other films that I wanted to check out, but just didn't get an opportunity to um, because I had uh, assignments and whatnot. So um, let me know how those films are. 
Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, some of those films I did get a chance to see myself, and uh, I can tell you that they're all worth checking out for sure. Uh, Casey, what about yourself? Yeah, I think we, we covered everything that I missed. I, I think that was pretty covered. But I know that a film that, while I think is not perfect and I don't think does anything new as well, was worth. And I think that if we're talking awards things, I think that Laura Benanti's supporting performance in that. She's more of a theater actress, but what she does in that film as um, a firefighter's widow is really great work. And that was a performance that stuck with me, even if the film, I think, isn't as in the upper echelon of all the films that I saw. I couldn't jive with Worth as much as I wanted to. I really, really, really wanted to like that movie a lot more, but Michael Keaton's performance in that just never fully clicked for me. I thought it was... Yeah, I agree with that. But I think Laura Benanti as well as Stanley Tucci, I think are quite good in that film. And I like the score a lot for that one. Yeah. Uh... I want to just throw a quick bone at a midnight. Well, it wasn't a midnight movie, but it should have been a midnight movie. And that's David Cron- uh, David Cronenberg's son's uh, film, Possessor. Uh, this movie was fucking insane. <laughs> it's just like so over the top in its uh, gore and violence. And yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that, actually. Uh, and then one other one, uh, just because... I've thought about it, and I've heard a lot of people talking about it at the festival. There was definitely um, a lot of discussions that were inspired by it. Um, It's a film called Black Bear with Aubrey Plaza, Sarah Gaydon, and uh, Christopher Abbott. Uh, That's one that I think that a lot of people will definitely be uh, talking about uh, over the next couple of months. And I don't know if that film got picked up off the top of my head. I'm sure it will, though. Uh, because that movie was wild. And it also featured Aubrey Plaza's uh, best performance of her career, my in my opinion, better than what she did even in Ingrid Goes West. So if you like what she did in that movie, uh, this is more of that, essentially. So that's something to get really excited over. Okay, uh, that's it. That'll do it here for our Sundance uh, 2020 recap. Valerie, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today. Tell everyone that's listening where they can find you on the internet. Uh, thanks for having me again, Matt. Uh, yeah. Anybody can find me on Twitter at Valerie Complex, all one word, V-A-L-E-R-I-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-X. And I'm on Instagram at Valerie underscore Complex. Great. Casey? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Casey Lee Clark. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our recap of the 2020 Sundance Film Festival here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support. And you can also lend us a dollar on Patreon, where, you know, for that one dollar, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us as well. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time.